Welcome to the Georgia Today podcast from GPB News. Today is Tuesday, September 19th. I'm Peter Biello. On today's episode, an Atlanta congressman leads the charge to limit the terms of U.S. Supreme Court justices. The Georgia Department of Revenue loses a bid to tax the revenue of coin-operated games. And how can zoning laws be changed to help with the state's housing shortage? These stories and more are coming up on this edition of Georgia Today. A federal court in Atlanta is scheduled to hear arguments tomorrow from three Georgia Republicans who falsely claim to be the state's presidential electors. GPB's Stephen Fowler reports they want to move their criminal charges from state court to federal court. Former Georgia GOP Chair David Schaefer, State Senator Sean Still, and former Coffee County GOP Chair Kathy Latham are the only Georgia alternate electors facing charges in the 2020 election interference racketeering case. They're arguing that they were acting as federal officials when they signed documents falsely claiming they were official electors and as such should have their cases heard in federal court. Prosecutors have called that argument, quote, far-fetched factual premise and a strained legal theory that they weren't federal officials and there's no justification to move the case. The trio of alternate electors have filed documents waiving their right to appear at the hearing, making their long-shot request even less likely to happen. For GPB News, I'm Stephen Fowler. Authorities in Metro Atlanta's Henry County are charging three officials at an animal rescue center with animal cruelty. The president of the sanctuary, Noah's Ark, was among those charged. State Senator Emanuel Jones says its problem started with a change of management. Skilled and long-term employees that are left, veterinarians were laid off. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, like not feeding the animals, not repairing the enclosure and allowing animals, big game animals, to escape. Noah's Ark denies the charges and says they're an attempt by former staff members to distract from its mission. The rescue center was a family destination in the area until it closed last year after an avian flu outbreak. Atlanta-area Congressman Hank Johnson is leading a Democratic charge in the U.S. House to limit the terms of U.S. Supreme Court justices. Johnson today introduced legislation after public polls show a decline in public confidence in the court linked to its decision last year striking down federal abortion rights and questions over judicial ethics. The measure is unlikely to pass in the Republican-controlled House. Atlanta City Council has directed its clerk to scan and release copies of petitions calling for a referendum on a planned public safety training center. The vote yesterday came even as the proposed referendum remains stuck in legal limbo. The city is waiting on a court decision over whether the petitions had been turned in on time. Project opponents hope releasing the signatures will pressure the city to stop fighting the referendum, which Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens has called futile and invalid. A consulting firm is recommending that a historic public housing project in Savannah be rebuilt rather than repaired. GPB's Benjamin Payne reports. Yamacra Village is among the nation's oldest federally funded housing projects, having been built in 1941 as a segregated complex for African Americans. Since then, decades of deferred maintenance at its 300-plus units have led to unsafe living conditions. Mold, asbestos, broken windows, and cracked foundations, among other dangers. Now, a new assessment of Yamacra Village puts a price tag on needed improvements at $51 million. But rather than repair, the consultants who did the assessment are recommending the complex be demolished and rebuilt. The Housing Authority of Savannah is in the process of seeking federal approval to do just that. However, some residents are concerned about being priced out or otherwise displaced by any new development, especially given Yamacraw's close proximity to downtown. For GPB News, I'm Benjamin Payne in Savannah. 
The Georgia Department of Revenue has lost a legal bid to tax the revenue generated from the leasing of coin-operated amusement machines. The state Supreme Court today unanimously upheld a lower court ruling that declared gross revenue from the machines tax-exempt. The decision came in a case brought by a company that operates in Arcade in Gwinnett County and involves an ambiguous state law. State lawmakers take up bills almost every year to address coin-operated games, an industry plagued by illegal cash payouts to winners. Georgia lawmakers are looking for better ways to help the state's cities and counties divvy up services like police and fire protection, road construction, water and sewer systems, and garbage collection. GPB's Devin Zwald has more. Officials with the Georgia Municipal Association told members of a joint legislative committee yesterday that for the most part, negotiations to divide services work well, but when there is a dispute, it often involves double taxation when county and cities provide the same services. They say disputes can lead to expensive lawsuits, and committee members say they are looking for ways to provide reasonable dispute resolution processes as an alternative to litigation. From the GPB Newsroom, I'm Devin Zwald. Georgia is getting $1.3 million to acquire land to protect several threatened or endangered species. The grants were among those announced yesterday by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Agency to 11 states in the U.S. Virgin Islands. The Georgia Department of Natural Resources will use the funds to protect red cockaded woodpeckers, gopher tortoises, and wood storks. State officials have not yet decided where the grant money will be used to acquire land. Georgia's population is growing, and that growing population needs housing. As builders look for places to build homes, they'll have to consider zoning laws that mandate a minimum lot size and a minimum size of the house, which could impact how many houses they can build. A new study by the Georgia Public Policy Foundation looks at lot minimums in counties, cities, and towns across Georgia and concluded that some might need to change their zoning to allow for greater density. Chris Denson is Director of Policy and Research at the Foundation and co-author of the study. He's with me now. Thank you very much for speaking with me. Thank you, Peter. I'm glad to be here. You used uh, publicly available data when it was available, and when it couldn't be found, you reached out to the governing body to try to obtain it. You were mostly successful at finding the data you needed. When it comes to a single-family home, what's the standard you were measuring against? For lot sizes, there is actually a standard that is set by the Department of Public Health, and local governments are not required to follow it, but it's it's a guideline. And so traditionally that measurement for lot size is uh, a one acre lot minimum when you have septic and a half acre lot minimum when you have public water or sewer available. Now, when it comes to home size minimums, that's a little bit trickier to find. Uh, there really is an industry standard. We reviewed the international building codes for that. They they don't really take a hard and fast rule, uh, but over the years, it did seem like organizations such as the American Planning Association have traditionally held that uh, a thousand square feet is a, is a benchmark. Uh, so that's what we use in the study. So for the purposes of this study, you focused just on single-family homes. We'd have to leave multifamily housing to a different study. But when it comes to single-family homes, in your look across the state, where were the greatest minimum lot sizes and where were the smallest? Yeah, sure. So one thing we found is there were a couple counties in southwest Georgia that have five-acre lot minimums. And they specifically mentioned that for agricultural purposes. And one thing that that I do want to stress as we talk about some of these maximums 
is that uh, almost entirely across the board, these are not representative of an entire city or an entire county. And so, you know, there are certain districts that have these very high lot minimums or very high home minimums, but it's not representative of the entire district. So we've already, you know, received some feedback from people that are saying, well, you know, you, you said here that it's a, you know, um, 22,000 square foot home, but you know, my home doesn't fit that standard. Well, it could be because it's grandfathered in before that zoning ordinance was passed, or more likely it's because they are not in the zoning district that we looked at for this study. So some areas had a five acre minimum. What about the smallest? For the most part, nearly every county has a lot size minimum. Some of them are a little bit more exorbitant than others, but for the most part, they kind of adhere to the, the standard. Home size minimum was something we didn't really find at all. Um, I think we say in the study that there are uh, less than 15% of Georgia's 159 counties that actually have a home size minimum. So in there, you know, there are some that have uh, the really high numbers, you know, 2,000, 2,200 square foot home, but some, uh, Atlanta comes to mind, for example, has a really low um, house, uh, really low minimum when it comes to home size. Yeah, that was uh, 150 square feet, right? To accommodate the tiny homes that were approved for Atlanta. Yes, absolutely. So just to summarize really quickly, because there are a lot of numbers in this report, that there's quite a bit of variability uh, with both um, lot sizes and and to a lesser extent, there's variability with, with home sizes. But you're also talking a little bit about how much it costs to build a home. And you use the industry standard, one industry standard of 150 bucks per square foot to construct a new home. That's not counting land costs or permitting costs. So if there's a minimum home size of 2,000 square feet, you know, you're talking about at least $300,000 to build a new home in a state that needs a lot of new housing. So when a community chooses such a high minimum, what happens to that community? What happens to the communities nearby when people need to live in that area? Yeah, absolutely. So on one hand, when it comes to the community, uh, especially when you start talking about zones that have upwards of two acre lot minimums, or you know these these home minimum standards where 2,000 square feet or higher, you're artificially inflating the cost of what could be built, and so you know you're you're increasing the price of the home, but you're also decreasing the amount of housing that can be available, uh, also inflating the price of the home that we're talking about in, in these situations. Mm-hmm. You read that some municipalities might need to reconsider their minimums, and. That made me think of communities near Savannah or Social Circle east of Atlanta that are going to have large electric vehicle related plants being built there and large numbers of workers expected to live in those places. Are those the communities that really need to be looking the hardest at their zoning to make sure that they're, you know, adequately zoned for the people who may be moving there? That is an excellent point. Uh, You know, we've noticed that when you had those major economic development projects, like you mentioned, whether it's the Rivian plant or the Hyundai plant or the SK plant, almost immediately upon the announcement of those major economic development projects, the thousands of jobs that they were going to bring into these communities, you started seeing housing moratoriums creep up. And what a housing moratorium is, is simply, we're not allowing for new housing to be built uh, in, in our community. And, you know, there's a real question there about where these, you know, these high paying jobs, for example, that, you know, we hear are, are touted, where are the people that are going to work these facilities going to uh, live? 
And so I, I think there is a real um, inherent tension here now between what can we do to ensure that Georgia maintains its reputation as a state that's friendly for business, as a you know growing state economically and population-wise, but also to ensure that we're accommodating all of the um, influx of population as well as the influx of jobs that we're creating due to this um, environment that we have. Are there any cities or states doing this well, addressing the problem well, that Georgia could maybe look to for for inspiration for a solution? Some states have decided to use uh, large sums of their uh, pandemic relief funds towards affordable housing incentives. I did see that the governor's office uh, recently announced they were doing some targeted incentive funds for uh, workforce housing developments. Yeah, R- rural workforce housing initiative is what that was. Exactly. Yes, and and so from that standpoint, you're seeing a lot of uh, experimentation. I think at the state level, as, as you know, as, as people try to address it, I think there's a real opportunity for Georgia to lead the way on this and truly be um, a leader. This is a real problem specifically, I think, is catching a lot of these fast-growing states off guard. It was exacerbated by the pandemic and the outmigration of a lot of states. Uh, you know, California and New York are often cited. And then how to deal with this influx of population and make, ensure that there is, you know, adequate housing. Chris Denson, thank you so much for speaking with me. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Peter. Appreciate it. Chris Denson is Director of Policy and Research at the Georgia Public Policy Foundation, and you can find a link to the full study at gpb.org. In sports, the Atlanta Braves try to end a four-game skid as they face the Philadelphia Phillies tonight. Kyle Schwarber hit a 483-foot homer last night, and Philadelphia went deep four other times in their 7-1 win over the Braves. Manager Brian Snicker wasn't too concerned about the losing streak, given that the team's position in the postseason is secure. He says of the losing streak, quote, We've come out of it before, and we will now. Spencer Strider will be on the mound for the Braves tonight. Cleveland Browns star running back and Georgia native Nick Chubb will undergo surgery on his left knee after suffering a gruesome season-ending injury in last night's loss to the Pittsburgh Steelers. The former Georgia Bulldog was taken off on a cart and transported to a Pittsburgh hospital for precaution. He was released and returned to Cleveland to undergo an MRI. And in basketball, the Atlanta Dream faced the Dallas Wings in Texas tonight in the second game of the first round of the WNBA playoffs. The Wings beat the Dream in the first game of the best of three series. The winner of the series will go on to face the Las Vegas Aces. And that's all we've got for this edition of Georgia Today. Thank you so much, as always, for tuning in. If you want to learn more about any of these stories, visit gpb.org slash news. And if you haven't subscribed to this podcast right now, highly recommend it. We will pop up in your podcast feed tomorrow afternoon and every weekday afternoon with all the latest stories from Georgia. If you've got feedback or a story suggestion, we want to hear from you. Send us an email. The address is georgiatoday at gpb.org. I'm Peter Biello. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.